waves a river It makes a gift of everything Tonight I feel like Elvis Longing for his long lost twin The sea of taillights that we all must swim Tonight I feel like Elvis Longing for his long Hello and welcome to episode 829 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Ben Lindbergh of 538, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello, Sam. I'm good, Ben. How are you? All right. All right. So today we are doing the Minnesota Twins preview podcast. Later in this episode, George Bissell will be talking to Mike Berardino, who is the beat writer for the Twins at the Pioneer Press. But we have the pleasure of talking to this year's BP Annual Essay author for the Twins chapter, Ken Funk. Hello, Ken. Hi, Ben. Hi, Sam. How are you guys? All right. And it's always a pleasure to have you on. You contribute to BP sometimes during the year, but annual season is really when you shine. You, you come off the bench and you're just like the BP annual specialist and you take two, three chapters every time. And whoever's editing the book would probably give you twice as many if you had the time to do that. So always a pleasure to have you contribute to the book and come on the preview podcast. And in the past, we've had you on multiple preview podcasts in the same series, but we only get you today, unfortunately. So you wrote about the twins and you kind of compared their rebuilding to other rebuilding efforts that have paid off recently, the Kansas City Royals and the Cardinals and the Astros and a bunch of teams that have sort of gotten through their awkward phase and have turned into very good teams, great teams. And you compared how they went about it to how the Twins have been going about it. And you found some similarities and you found some pretty big differences, at least so far. So can you summarize your findings about the Twins rebuilding effort so far? Sure, absolutely. Um, So it seemed to me that the Twins coming into this season are about where uh, some of the teams that you mentioned, the Mets and the Cubs and the uh, Royals and the Cardinals, were last year or the year before. They all had great homegrown talent. All that talent was about ready to graduate to the major leagues, had already started to graduate to the major leagues in in a couple of instances. And all these teams are committed to building that way. And the question was, how did the Twins go about taking that next step? Um, And and looking at the Mets and and the uh, Cubs and the Royals and the Cardinals, I thought was one way to be able to see what would be the roadmap that they might follow. And what it turned out to me to to be the most uh, compelling thing was that the Cubs did some things while they were in the rebuilding mode, which would be things that the Twins may have been doing, should have been doing maybe the last few years, about bringing in some veteran talent, spinning it off to to, uh, get some more young talent in, to be more active during the phase while they were rebuilding, while they were building towards getting all this talent on the Major League roster. The Twins, it seemed, haven't really done very well at that. They've signed some free agents. None of them have turned out particularly well. They've made some trades. None of them have turned out particularly well. And and every team, it seemed, was better at the other aspects of player acquisition uh, than, than the Twins turned out to be. So really the message that I that I got from looking at that was that the Twins, no matter how good your farm system is, no matter how many terrific players they're going to graduate over the next few years, if that's all they're going to rely on, if that's all they're going to be able to be successful at, it's hard to see them developing into a perennial powerhouse or into a team that might win a World Series. So they had a extremely inactive offseason, maybe the most inactive offseason in baseball, uh, which is kind of surprising because last year 
kind of felt like the way it played out, you could have you could have maybe come out of that feeling like it was the consolidation year, uh, even though it was probably a year earlier than they expected to have a consolidation year. And uh, so they kind of answered the question of how close they see themselves, maybe uh, with their offseason. So they, I know that they got J.R. Murphy and they got Byung-Ho Park. Is that the whole? Is that it? Did I miss anybody? No, that's pretty much it. That's a that's a lot of time for two signings for two acquisitions. Yeah, they didn't really do a lot. And I think, you know, it seems as though when you get this close to contention, you, you sort of have to go one of two ways. You either need to go out and start going for it, start adding a fair amount of players, maybe spending some money bringing in some, some better free agents or trading for some players that have bigger contracts to say, this is our year. This is the year that we're going to try and win the Central or at least make it as a wild card. Or you need to go to the offseason saying, we're not quite there yet. Look at the pieces that you have that are fungible, that have some value, perhaps, but that aren't necessarily going to be a building back for the future. And look at trading those. So looking at guys like Trevor Plouffe or um, before, you know, two years ago, especially when Philip Hughes came along and had a great first season, instead of re-signing him for those two years, um, adding two pretty much unnecessary extension years at the end of his contract, maybe that would have been the time to maybe deal him when he was at his highest value to be able to build towards the future. But by doing nothing, it's sort of, it's, I think that they're acknowledging that they're not quite ready, but they didn't really take any steps to make themselves more ready. Other than Park, I think the Park signing is a good signing for them. I think it's kind of out of character for them to, to make that kind of a move. It was actually not very expensive. So while it's a bit of a gamble, it's not a very expensive gamble. It's kind of like the Jose Abreu deal was for the White Sox. You're taking a chance, but it's not really expensive. But I, I was a little bit surprised too that they didn't move one way or the other. They sort of stayed where they were and are just kind of waiting and seeing, which I don't think really does them a lot of good. Yeah, well, I mean, I I sort of feel like, uh, I know you were oversimplifying, but I don't think those are the two things that, the two ways that you you should be moving in an offseason. If you see yourself as a competitive team in 2017, it seems to me that one thing we've seen uh, in recent years is that it takes multiple years to acquire the players that you need to turn a young team into a competitive team. It, that you can't count on all the guys that you want to be available the year that you need them. And so with the Cubs, like you laid out quite well, the Cubs built up to some degree and put themselves in that position with moves in not just the year before they were competitive, uh, but the year before. And I think you saw that a little bit with the Astros as well. And so you would think if the Twins saw themselves as really being ready to explode in 2017, there's still no reason not to start collecting pieces now. Most guys are going to take multi-year contracts anyway. You have a little bit more flexibility if you don't have to, unless they think that their team is going to be so good because they're so stocked with young talent and they do have a lot of young talent that they really aren't going to need a lot more pieces. No, no, you make a good point. And I, although if I think if you were to talk to Terry Ryan, I don't think that he would say we think we're loaded. We think we're ready to be a World Series contender this year. I think they expect to be good. They expect to be a winning team. They probably have a good feeling about making the playoffs. But I don't think that they have really necessarily feel that they've arrived either. So you're exactly right. Even if this isn't the year, if next year is going to be the year, it would make a lot of sense to start acquiring those pieces that sitting and waiting around for the next thing to happen isn't going to really get you anywhere. And I think that's what they've done, which I think is a little bit disappointing for the Twins. So Park hit... Uh, what, 53 home runs in Korea last year, I think? Maybe 52? And mm-hmm. uh, 53, yeah. 52 yes. and then 53. Yeah, back okay. Back years. So uh, this is uh, kind of a, a serious question, though it won't sound like it. Is that a lot? 
Is that a lot? You know, I, I know I say that is a serious question. I think that is a lot. I mean, I think it's more than just the number. I, and Lord knows I am not a scout, and I'm definitely not a scout of Asian Korean ballplayers. But when, when you look at his swing and you look at, at the way that he was hitting those home runs, those those weren't wall scrapers. I mean, he, he was putting a lot of juice into those, pit, into those pitches. And clearly the pitching is going to be different when he gets over here. The velocity is going to be a lot, a lot higher. But I think that that... that seems to me like a skill that's going to translate to a certain extent. I don't, you know, the twins have had the, their last uh, foray into the Asian market didn't work out particularly well for them. So I give them credit for sort of putting the Tsuyoshi and Nishioka contract behind them and, and diving back into the Asian pool. But I, I think that, yeah, that, that is a lot of home runs. And it's not just, it doesn't seem to be just a product of the environment and the competition. When you look at, when you look at the size of the guy and you look at the way that he swings and you look at the length of some of his home runs, already in batting practice uh, in, in spring training, and Lord knows this is, this is tremendously small samples, but they're already talking about days where they've been taking batting practice and the only guy that's been able to hit them out has been Park and this is a team that that has Miguel Sano. So I think that that he does have tremendous raw talent or raw power that is going to translate. Obviously the the two main complaints about Twins team construction over the last couple of years, maybe even the last several years, the lack of strikeouts on the pitching staff coupled with the lack of defense on the field, which just has always seemed like a mismatch. And of course, they've had the lowest strikeout rate in the league for the last five seasons, which is really maybe the most consistent team attribute there is, you know, of any Mm -hmm. franchise. It's hard to be the worst at anything for five years in a row. And Pakoda has them projected to be the worst in baseball yet again this year. It's close it depends on, you know, how you project the playing time and all that. But the Twins are projected to finish with something like 18 fewer strikeouts than the Tigers this year. The defense, though, seems to be looking up, at least in center, where Byron Buxton might be. And speaking of Pakota projections, he has among the most interesting, maybe among the most anomalous, in that he's projected to be a 5 win player, which is incredibly bullish for a guy who struggled last year. And it's almost all defense. He is projected to be a plus 25 center fielder, which is one of the most surprising Dakota projections I've ever seen. So there are signs that the strikeout rate is coming around. There are signs that the defense is coming around. How much do you expect either or, or both of those things to improve this year? Yeah, I think, you know, so um, Matt Trueblood uh, had, a, had a piece on the site today that I thought was really very good talking about exactly that, the fact that it's fine to have a team that has uh, low strikeout pitchers if you put a good defense behind them. And the Twins certainly haven't done that in the recent past. And they didn't really do anything to make their infield defense any better. The, their shortstop, Eduardo Escobar, has seemed to regress uh, defensively. So has Brian Dozier at second base. Neither of them seem to be plus defenders. Trevor Plouffe has made himself into a pretty good defender at third base. But really, there's no change in the infield to make to make anyone think that they're going to be able to turn more ground balls into outs. But you're right. In the outfield, Buxton's projection, um, it's it's ridiculous how almost how 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 good they expect uh, Dakota expects him to be in center field. And I think that he is going to be very good. I, I don't know whether he's going to be, uh, you know, that good. He's going to save that many runs in center field. I think it's hard for almost anyone to save that many runs in, uh, defensively in center field. But I think I'm actually um, more bullish on his offensive projection than than Pakota is. I think that, you know, he the talent. It, it, 
he's a very talented player. He has incredible raw skills. He's been injured. He's been up and down. He's already shown in the minors. He has nothing really left to prove down there. When he went down to the minors last year, he was he hit really well. I think that having an offseason coming into into uh, Minnesota with a good chance at the starting job, I think by the end of the season, we're going to see the sort of player that we've expected Byron Buxton to become. And I think having him in center field is a, is a big reason why I think that they're going to, that they're going to be a, a more solid team in many ways than last year. Um, whether or not he can make up for putting a rhinoceros in right field with uh, Miguel Sano, trying whether he's going to be able to cover for for uh, Sano's inexperience and whatever kind of range he might have in right field, I'm, I'm not sure about that. And whether or not I'm, I'm not a big believer in left field, I think that Arcia might wind up being a left fielder, and he's in the best shape of his life and has been working on his defense. But I don't really expect him to to be. Uh, a very good fielder in left field. Rosario is a good fielder in left field, but I don't. I kind of expect him not to really get on base enough to be able to hold the job long term. So, yeah, I think the defense will be better, but whether or not it'll be able to make up for defensive deficiencies around the, the rest of the field, I'm, I'm not quite so sure about that. Dang it, Ken! You, I have now. I'm split between which segue to go to. I was. Uh, you just named the two things I was going to ask you about next. All right, I'm going to go with. Uh, with I'm going to stay on Buxton. Okay. So, okay. Uh, what were you thinking about Arcia or uh, yeah, yeah. Well, sort of. Uh, so with Buxton, um, he is the best prospect in the American League, the best prospect eligible player in the minor league uh, in the American League, according to pretty much everyone. He will be playing. That would make him a natural fit for uh, the Rookie of the Year award. But when Brian Grosnick last week used Pakoda to sort of handicap the uh, awards races, he actually uh, landed not on Buxton but on Jose Barrios as his favorite. So probably, uh, I, I know obviously people who follow prospects know a lot about him. It's not like he's like slipped under the radar or anything. Uh, but to people who maybe don't, uh, he's not. he hasn't reached the levels of Snow and Buxton where everybody knows him uh, and they're massively famous. So how good is he? And more, more to the point, is, is this really a year that you can expect, we can expect uh, him to make that sort of contribution? I think he's ready, definitely. I think he's going to be a very, very good pitcher. He's, um, I wouldn't put him at the forefront of the rookie of the year race because I'm not sure how soon he's going to be up. The, the Twins mm-hmm. may be cautious with him. They, they're always a little worried. One of the things about Barrios is he's, he's fairly slight. He's not a big guy. He's six feet. He's, he's not strongly built, but he's got tremendous stuff. He's got a fantastic Bugs Bunny changeup. He's got all the stuff to be a, be a frontline starter. Um, he's one of the, he's, you know, the point of the spear for the twins finally getting a starting rotation of guys that can miss bats. So I think that he's, uh, you know, definitely going to be, uh, whether or not he's an ace, I'm not sure, but at least a solid number two. Um, what he'll be this year, I'm not sure without any major league experience, but he pitches with a chip on his shoulder. He's got tremendous stuff. I don't think he's going to be a rookie of the year, but I think that he's one of the reasons why I think the rotation is going to be better this year than it was last year. And what do you make of Buxton's offensive potential? I guess it's kind of tempting to see his 2015 as, you know, Mike Trout's first fraction of a year when he came up and struggled, not to the extent that Buxton did, but then he came back the next year as the best player in baseball. Obviously, it's very unlikely that Buxton will do that, but seeing him overmatched to the extent that he was and Sano just one of the best hitters in the league from day one was a contrast between top prospects, which, you know, sometimes they come up and are amazing and other times they look very much like they should still be in the minor leagues. 
Oh, absolutely. And but in Buxton, again, you're right. Everyone has gotten so spoiled by seeing things like uh, Mike Trout come up and be that good right away. I mean, this was the first time that Brian Buxton got to see Major League pitching, and people forget how huge a difference it is between facing the best pitchers in the world every day and being able to make some hay against some mediocre pitchers in the minor leagues. He's been battling injuries. I think that, though, with a full spring training and knowing that he's going to have a job or there's a good chance he's going to have a job, they haven't proclaimed it his, but they really want him to earn that job in spring training. I think that he's a guy that can hit for high average. He can draw some walks. He'll have decent power. He's not going to have Miguel Sano-type power. But he's got he's got every tool. I mean, he, he can hit 20 home runs, I would think. He can steal a lot of bases. A tremendous defense in center field. Whether that all happens this year, I don't know. But I think that he's definitely going to beat uh, his projection. Because what, what does Dakota have him at? 256 true average, where 260 is league average. Yeah, yeah, 313 on base, 407 slugging. I, I actually think that, though, I don't know whether he's going to hit more than the 15 home runs that they're projecting him for, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if he increased his on base percentage uh, significantly above that. And I, actually, I think it's something that the Twins lineup needs him to do more than hit for power. They have power hitters in their lineups now with, lineup now with guys like Park and uh, with Sano, obviously, and uh, Dozier and Plouffe both can hit home runs. Um, they, what they don't really have is someone at the top of the order that can get on base. And I think that if Buxton can, can do that, can post a credible, um, on base percentage, can hit a few home runs and play spectacular defense in center field, which most people expect him to do, I think he's going to be a really valuable player. Mm-hmm. And even though they are projected for the fewest strikeouts in baseball, there are players you can look at, you know, who will be on the roster this season, who seem to fly in the face of the typical Twins pitcher. If you just look at the projected starting rotation and the five guys at the top of the depth chart, you say, well, it's the same old pitch-to-contact Twins. But you could envision that being very different. Of course, you know, it hasn't always been this way. The Twins were the team of Johan Santana and Francisco Liriano, and Mm -hmm. they've been incredibly consistent at pitching-to-contact the last several years. But it does seem as if that might be changing, which is something I think I wrote in an article in 2013. So I don't know whether that's <laughs> true or not. But. Well, you know, this is this is Minnesota. Things change slowly up here in the Upper Midwest. <laughs> right. So yeah, I mean, besides uh, besides uh, Berrios, um, Tyler Duffy came up last year and was uh, their their best starting pitcher down the stretch. Probably he misses bats. He's not going to be setting strikeout records, but he has a, a higher strikeout rate than pretty much any of the other veterans that they have on the staff. Um, there are other pitchers in the minor leagues that that, that are missing more bats. They, the Twins went through this phase of, of drafting uh, relievers that had terrific strikeout rates with the thought of turning some of them into starters, and that hasn't paid off particularly well yet, but there are enough guys in the minors that, that are missing bats that you can see that this wave is coming. It's still such a huge gap between with their strikeout rate and the rest of the league that it's going to take some time. But as, you know, the they, the, the contracts that they've uh, handed out to guys like Santana and Hughes as they sort of age out and, and they have the young uh, pitchers come up, I think that, yeah, they're going to start striking out guys at a more, I'm not going to say that they're going to be an above average strikeout team, but I think that they're gonna, it's going to be a more normal rate. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, Sam, you have any, anything else? Yeah, I wanted to ask about Oswaldo Arcia, <laughs> actually, <laughs> as it turns out. He might have had the worst year of anybody in baseball, like uh, relative to, uh, like, like as far as like career uh, disrupting seasons. And his comps are just tremendously fascinating because they're a mix of guys who 
a flamed out spectacularly like Travis Snyder and uh, Ian Stewart and Willie Mopena and guys who are super good like Chris Davis and Jay Bruce and Carlos Gonzalez. And uh, so it was a year ago that he was good. He's only going to be 25. I'm just curious how pessimistic or optimistic you are. Well, I, yeah, I, I can't be particularly unbiased because I just happen to love Osvaldo Arce. I, I just I just love him as a ball player. He's He's just very different, you know, and just this, this bizarre hairstyles and just the way that he approaches the game. So I, I'm definitely pulling for him. He's got raw power, and he's shown a, a good plate approach in the minors and at times in the majors. But you're right, last year was just a total crater. He hurt his hip, um, was not able to really come back from that, did not play well in the minors. Um, the rumors were that he was pouting, he wasn't happy with that. The, the organization wasn't happy with him. So you're right. He seemed like uh, a perfect change of scenery candidate. But from what, what you're reading, and, you know, my friend, you know, might really have something to say about this as well. Um, RC spent the offseason in Fort Myers working on his defense, getting in, you know, the best shape of his life. And I'm really bullish on him. I think, uh, as I said before, I think I, I like him more than I do Rosario as a left fielder. I think that his power potential, his bat, it could be something that could be really pretty special left-handed power in the American League. So I, I'm still bullish on him. I may be the last person in America that's still bullish on him, but I think that he's a great safety net for Park if Park is not adjusting to the major leagues early in the season very well, having RC on the roster to be able to DH against you know tougher right-handed pitchers, I think is a good idea. Having him play some left field, if he can play left field less like a statue, um, I think that he's going to be, I think he's going to have a, a bounce back here. All right. You want to give us a win total? All right, so uh, as we've talked about this many times before, what I tend to do is sort of take the team, what they what they did last year, what their record was, and try and think where have they improved, where have they gotten worse, how has their competition changed. So last year they won uh, 83 games, um, although their Pythagorean uh, record was only uh, a little bit under 500. I actually think that this team will be better than last year's team. I think that Buxton is going to start breaking out. He's not going to be an all-star, but he's going to start building a, a tremendous career. I think that uh, getting Barrios in the, in the rotation um, is definitely going to help. I think that having Irvin Santana for the whole year is going to get a lot worse pitchers out of the rotation that, that we're suffering for him. I think that that's going to help. Um, and I think that uh, in left field, RC and Rosario will be able to, one or, one or both of them will be a, a bonus for them, in addition to adding Park at the DH. So I'm saying that they're going to win 83 games again. It's going to be the same record as last year, but they'll have earned those 83 as opposed to earning 80 or 81. But their true talent level will be 83. Okay. Well, if you pick up a BP annual, about 8% of it or so was written by Ken. So you have read him whether you know it or not. Thank you, Ken, for writing the essay and for joining us today. Okay. All right. Thanks, guys. I can't believe we got through a whole Twins discussion without a single uh, talking point about Joe Maurer. <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't know what to say about him anymore. Oh, is Wish he, he were is better? He, is he still on the Twins? I thought his contract expired. <laughs> you know, I actually, since you guys, you know, are are both experienced front office execs, I was just curious <laughs> about that. With the, the insurance on his contract, I wonder. And I, I know they'd never do this, and they couldn't actually do this, probably. But murder him? <laughs> no, 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 no. He's there are still people up there that just love him, so you, you can't. He's the hometown boy. You can't do that. But can you say that you signed into that contract to be a catcher? And he is now not medically cleared to be a catcher. So, ah. can, you know what I'm saying? I mean, there's a big difference, as we all know, between Joe Maurer as a catcher and Joe Maurer as a first baseman. That's a really Could good question. Invoke? Yeah, I, I'm, I was really curious about that. I, I don't really know the answer. Well, unfortunately, that makes three of us. So stay tuned after the break 
to hear George talk to Mike Berardino of the Pioneer Press. Welcome back to Effectively Wild. I'm George Bissell with Baseball Prospectus. Joining me now is Mike Berardino. He's the Minnesota Twins beat writer for the Pioneer Press. You can follow him on Twitter at Mike Berardino. Mike, thank you for taking the time to join us today. It's great to have you on the show. Nice to be with you, George. The Twins offseason can pretty much be summed up in about two transactions. They traded outfielder Aaron Hicks to the Yankees for backup catcher J.R. Murphy, and they signed Korean slugger Byung-Ho Park. That's pretty much it. Do you get the sense that the organization attempted to make additional moves, whether it was via free agency or potential trade, and just those moves never materialized? Or were they perfectly comfortable with how little they actually changed the composition of the roster this offseason? I think the latter. I mean, they they may have poked around on some other relievers, but once they got, especially from the left side, but once they got a sense of where left-handed relief was going as a market, and they saw what Tony Sip was going to get. Now he was going to drag the others up. That's uh, that's how they ended up uh, pretty much settling for Fernando Abad on a minor league deal that would pay him a million and a quarter. They they do have in their defense on that, especially with the relief, they do have some very interesting left-handed options coming up through the system who could help them as soon as uh, April. Uh, Taylor Rogers, who was always a starter in the minors, was out in the fall league this year and um, the last two years, actually. And he has very good stuff um, and and has uh, dominated left-handers as a starter for the most part. It's righties that give him trouble, so he's interesting. And pending Mason Melotakis, uh, who was coming out of Tommy John surgery, but that's 18 months ago, so he's well past that. He, he can touch 95, 96 with good secondary stuff. Uh, he's never pitched above double A, but again, that's not too far away. So that's just two names that I think uh, made them uh, concerned about the progress stopping. What are the Twins' expectations for Byung-Ho Park this season? Were you surprised that they signed him, given some of the options they already have on the existing roster that kind of fit that DH profile in the mold of you know, a Kenny's Vargas or an Oswaldo Arcia? Well, I mean, those, both those guys you named um, have seen better days. They're still young players, but they lost career momentum. In particular, Arcia, um, who, who really struggled down at AAA Rochester last year after they sent him out on what initially was a rehab assignment. It's been two straight years that he's been sent out on what was supposed to be a rehab assignment, and then he uh, gets it converted to a demotion. But uh, frankly, I don't think I mean, they, they've said that 18 teams bid on Park, and the Twins were, uh, they didn't really feel like they were necessarily that aggressive with their posting number, but um, with the bid, but they got it. And, uh, they're happy to get it because they do know him uh, better than most teams because of their scout uh, who's full-time in South Korea, David Kim, who's been watching him since he was in high school. And they felt they, they didn't just understand the, the power component that he's supposed to bring, but they really had a good read on his makeup, which is uh, unusual when you're scouting, uh, you know, finished professionals in, uh, in Asia. But, you know, that's, that's kind of where they came out with that. If he, you know, they do, they do have the option of sending him out to AAA if if he just flops, either in the spring or in the, in the early going. They certainly don't uh, want to do that, but that that could happen. And then you could see out Kenny Vargas, who 
was MVP of the Puerto Rican Winter League and, and feels confident, lost 15 pounds, and feels like he's found something in his swing. We'll see. I mean, it's, uh, it's one thing to hit like that in winter ball and, and another when it counts. He's certainly one of the more interesting guys in baseball. I'll give uh, a Kenny's Vargas that. And that, that background on Park is, is pretty fascinating, too. Uh, if the Twins are going to get back into playoff contention, do they need their top prospects, Byron Buxton and Miguel Sano, to develop into legitimate superstars? Is that really their only path back into contention, at least for the immediate future? Well, if you look at the fact that they chased the wild card to the final weekend, they entered that final weekend series against the Royals at home with a, with a chance, uh, with a mathematical chance to the final three games, uh, with Buxton contributing very little last year, Sano contributing a lot but for a half season, Irvin Santana contributing a lot but for a half season. So you can do some extrapolation there and say, uh, let's say they got a full season of Buxton based on what the tools would indicate, which would be maybe a little aggressive uh, for a projection, but let's say it all clicked for them. And a full season of Sano uh, without a sophomore jinx of any sort, which is possible, although the move to right field is a concern and, and could impact his hitting if it becomes a mental thing in the outfield. And and a full season of Irvin Santana, who they announced the spring rotation today, and, and it's uh, you know if you do the math, he, he's on path to be their opening day starter, which if you look at the way he pitched over his final month, that would be perfectly fine. So those three pieces right there would make you think that uh, – yeah, I mean they could take it from 88 or 83 wins up to you know 88 plus. If it, you know, we'll see what it takes. But they they are very open about the fact that just getting a wild card is not good enough for them. That's not something that that's not what you're going to set the whole thing up to achieve. I want to get your thoughts on Miguel Sano specifically. Last year, the offensive numbers he put up were stellar. What was the most impressive aspect of his debut, at least from your from your perspective? Plate discipline, uh, running all those full counts, nearly 100 full counts, and, and the comfort level that he showed uh, with two strikes, even though he did strike out a bunch. I mean, the, the strikeout rate was was high. It really got skewed a little bit late after he hurt his hamstring, a pretty severe hamstring uh, pull in uh, Tampa on the turf there, the field turf, in late August, and that really hampered him for the final stretch, and, and that's when you really saw the strikeout rate uh uh, just spike from July 2nd until late August. He was an extremely tough out and very rarely expanded. His, his batting eye is very advanced and, and uh, to hit with that kind of authority and uh, never really uh, get uh, too happy up there and chase stuff. That was, um, that was impressive. That, that really stood out. You touched on it earlier, but how big are the concerns about Sano transition to the outfield? Do they think this is going to be something he's going to be able to do without much of a problem, or is this a potential issue for him that could impact him at the plate? That's the issue. That's an open question, George. I mean, uh, they have Torrey Hunter in here in camp. He just got in uh, a day ago, and that's project number one for him, really, the, the by and large. The, the thing he's here to do is to help groom his uh, successor and one that no one could have imagined would be the successor in right field um, as Tori uh, rode off into the sunset uh, last year because um, even when they kind of mused about it publicly at the Hunter press conference uh, for retirement, it, it just seemed like, well, maybe they're just giving themselves some more leverage in case they want to trade Trevor Plouffe. Well, I, you know, they'll say that they didn't ever get down the road very far on talks with Plouffe. They feel he's a winning piece. He's, only making seven and a quarter million, which for a third baseman with 20 plus homers and his defense is fine, still a, still a bargain. So 
So they're going to try Sano out there because, for one thing, uh, his weight was going in the wrong direction last year. That was, you know, partially because of the hamstring and partially because he was DHing exclusively once he got up here. And he ended the year at 268 officially. So he um, he, he says he's down to 263 officially, and he's going <laughs> to lose more running around after these fly balls. And uh, if he can keep his legs under him and not have any uh, hamstring issues, not have any flare-ups like that, uh, it's, it'll it may um, it'll kill multiple birds because it, it'll keep him in decent shape. It'll keep him engaged. He didn't particularly like the aging, even though he's very productive. Most young players don't. He's still only 22 years old. And, of course, it's a, it's a right-handed corner power bat, which um, costs a lot more on the, on the open market than what Miguel Snow is going to make this year. We haven't seen a lot of Byron Buxton yet, only 46 games last year, but is it fair to say that he may already be one of the best defensive center fielders in the game? He's very good. I think there's a lot more in the tank defensively that he can show because they, his arm isn't just strong, it's very accurate. Eddie Rosario got all the playing time last year, on, mostly in left field, so we got to talk a lot about his ability to cut down runners. But I think Buxton has every bit that ability if they test him, and that's going to be a big issue. If it'll, I know Miguel Sano is rooting for Buxton to make this team out of spring training, and it's not just because they're fishing buddies, because Sano would probably only have to cover a, you know a third of the distance that uh, that he otherwise might if they tried somebody else out there. And, and plan B is not terribly appealing because they're saying Malder says that uh, they want to keep Rosario in left, even though he can fill in in center. And so if Buxton just doesn't hit it all in the spring and they send him out again, which is possible, then you're looking at uh, fallbacks like maybe Max Kepler, who's their minor league player of the year last year, but a natural really left fielder. You know, Darren Matriani, uh, who, who used to be back for more here, good guy, <laughs> uh, but not what you want on opening day in center field. And Ryan Sweeney's coming out of retirement, and uh, he's actually not a bad center fielder historically, but uh, been out of the game for a year. So um, these are some of the Joe Bensons in this camp. I mean, it's um, it really is Buxton's job to lose. Well, for what it's worth, in Pakoda's latest update, only Kevin Kiermaier is projected as a better defensive center fielder this season. So that's a well, pretty elite company. Way to go! Thank you uh, to Pakoda. It's um, no, that I think there's uh, that's pretty good company. It's entirely possible once he gets comfortable that, that yeah, he can do those things. Even when he did, because even when he didn't hit last year, he did he had a game-saving catch in Tampa on one, uh, one or Houston when they ran out the so-called outfield of the future. That didn't uh, last because Aaron Hicks was traded. But yeah, they had Hicks uh, in right and Rosario in left and Buxton in center, and nothing dropped that night. And, that would be one of the subplots uh, of this year is if you're putting snow out there and right, and if Buxton doesn't break camp with you and you have a lesser defender and center to go with Rosario, um, you're taking one of your team's strengths from last year where they really made strides. They moved from bottom one or two for the last several years in outfield defense by efficiency all the way up into the top ten, pushing the top ten uh, in that. And, and now what will it be like and how will that impact the pitching staff and the way that they attack hitters. It seems like it's either going to be really stellar defensively or just an, an absolute quagmire out there. So, so. It, could, it, it could, you know, uh, it, that's, um, I think it starts with, so no, I think it's kind of, 
Bet Bell, I'll tell you, well, he's going to surprise Butch Davis, the, the outfield instructor, has been around forever. He, he says he's going to surprise people. So knows a better athlete than we realize. He was always nimble, mm. signed as a shortstop, obviously, uh, many pounds ago. <laughs> he's not, he's not, uh, it's not a Pablo Sandoval kind of thing. It's not Hanley Ramirez last year. What it is, it's a, uh, it's just an unfamiliarity, I think, even more than the than the athleticism part of it. I think it's the unfamiliarity that getting turned around on routes. It's that that sort of throwing to the wrong base is going to happen, and and they're they're gradually lowering the bar of expectation with every every time they field questions about what Snow and Wright is going to look like. It'll be very interesting. They're going to get him extra at bats uh, this spring, more than he normally would need. And some of that will come on backfields where we may not be able to see the misplays, but they're going to get him as many reps as possible because, yeah, you're right, it really could go, it could swing uh, violently in either direction. As a New Englander who watched Hanley Ramirez last year, I'm telling you, nothing could be worse than that. So you have yeah, that going. Yeah, I, uh. I saw a little of it, and I covered Hanley back in his Florida days as a shortstop, and they were trying to get him off a shortstop way back then. So we'll see what he's like over there first. But yeah, I, 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 I was, uh, I guess I was using hyperbole. <laughs> From an outsider's perspective, it seems at least to me that the most polarizing twin among the local fan base is Joe Maurer. Is that a fair assessment of how the fans view him, and and really how are they viewing him at this stage in his career? Because it seems like it's gone a little bit negative uh, from a <laughs> fan standpoint on Joe Maurer here. Well, I think you're right. Um, you know, there has been a downward trend offensively since the uh, since the major concussion in August of 2013, but there are some pluses you could hold on to, such as reaching base in 43 straight games, a franchise record uh, from August to late September when in the heat of a race. Um, uh, runners in scoring position average, which, you know, you don't want to read too much into, but he was in the top five in the league. He, he's uh, he's pleased with that. The um, the strikeout rate has climbed. The walks have dropped. And then, you know, the issue now is, 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 is he seeing the ball well enough? And he admitted um, in a recent interview with our paper, uh, with one of my cohorts, that, uh, there were times when the glare was such, not just in day games, but even in night games, uh, since the concussion, at times where, where he struggled to pick up the ball. So in order to cut down on glare uh, this spring, he's, he's the first two days of live batting practice. He wore sunglasses. He's going to keep experimenting with different models uh, to see. Even uh, He might even you know try it out, I suppose, in a night game just to see. I, I don't think you're going to see that. But, he, you know, he historically has been very... Uh, very uh, averse to that, and um, never—I don't think he's taken very many at bats at all with sunglasses. Plenty of guys have. That's the kind of thing that he's, he's grasping for as he goes into his age 33 season. Physically, he feels, you know, body-wise, feels better than he has in a while because he's worked with a flexibility trainer named Roger Erickson, who's trying to turn back the clock on that. And Joe stayed on the field last year career high number of games and plate appearances etc people always said if you could just keep this guy in the field well he stayed on the field and now they're not happy with the production you're right he is a lightning rod a lot of it has to do with being a saint paul hometown guy a lot of it has to do with the contract that was structured for him to be a premium catcher and not a uh, power challenge first baseman you couldn't have seen that coming this soon in the contract and there's still three years left and People are well aware that there's $69 million left on it, and he has a full no trade. So there, there are a lot of people trying to make the best of it. But I actually think I think Joe, as long as he's feeling good physically and he, and he and gets his uh, arms around some of this, this vision thing, 
that's uh, pretty darn important for a hitter. If, if you know, there's eye exercises you can do. There's so many. There's so many computer programs to, to improve that that minor leaguers do. There's many, many things you can you can try to do. But the one thing you can never uh, underestimate is the, the impact of that concussion on his career. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, head injuries, especially concussions, there's so much we don't know about recovery from them and, and everything like that. And you see it with, with Maurer, just the struggles he's had. Uh, as we transition to the rotation, I want to take a quick step back to last season for just a moment. What were some of the reasons that general manager Terry Ryan and the, and the Twins front office gave to explain the decision not to call up prospect Jose Barrios from AAA? You mentioned they were fighting to stay in the playoff race. They were in it till the, the final home stretch there. And, and Barrios pitched well in AAA at a sub-3 ERA and 12 starts there. He led the minors with 175 strikeouts. What were some of the reasons they didn't call him up last year? They would say that um, two things. His innings total, uh, the jump from the previous year, um, was maybe 15% uh, or more. Um, that He was starting to get in a territory they weren't comfortable with, pushing his innings load. And so if they did bring him up, it was going to be as a reliever. And he had never done that outside of the World Baseball Classic, where he struck out Robinson Cano a couple of years ago. Uh, so they they uh, and they, they were just they were just wary of that part of it. And the other was they really didn't have a pressing need at that moment in the rotation. They waited. It was almost like there was a window in there somewhere to bring up Barrios and have him make an impact because Mike Belfry couldn't win on the road at all in the second half, really from June on. But he was so good. He was pretty good at home. He was good enough. Um, so the, and then Velasco came back at the very end, but that wasn't really it. But uh, Hughes had been battling back problems, so they were out Phil Hughes for a month. Down. It, like, it's like if they had brought up Bar- the, the moment to bring up Barrios was probably mid-August when Hughes went on the shelf in Cleveland with a back problem. But instead, it was Tyler Duffy brought back after a terrible debut, just terrible in Toronto, and then he got on a roll. He was really the best uh, starter next to Santana. There was a gap between him and Santana. But Tyler Duffy was really an overlooked rookie uh, contributor last year, and, and uh, strikeout rate, the, the success with his curveball, and just his poise on his second turn really made it such that who are you going to displace if you brought up Barrios once once Duffy got rolling? So what's the plan for the rotation this spring? Because you mentioned it, there's a lot of names there, and there's only so many spots. And some of these guys, I mean, you look at someone like Ricky Nolasco or Tommy Malone, they don't really profile as relief pitchers. What are they going to do with all these starters, and how do you see, see things shaking out in the rotation? Well, the um, plan A is, it would appear, Santana, Kyle Gibson, Phil Hughes, Duffy, and then Malone, who they did retain in arbitration, Four and a half million committed to Malone. Now that leaves Ricky Nolasco at twenty-five million over two years, sitting in long relief potentially. Or they would be very, very happy if somebody with a desperate need in the rotation would take him off their hands this spring. If teams want to see him get go out there and get some people out, even if it's spring training, and we made the two appearances at the end of last year and got lit up on the final Sunday of the season. Um, and I do think that the Twins would be willing to, I've reported this, that the, the owner, Jim Polad, has said that uh, they would be willing, not speaking specifically of Ricky, but they would be willing to eat some money, which the Twins have never done, uh, to uh, solve some of their problems. And that's that's one of the big problems when you have $25 million in essentially dead money, unless somebody else goes down in front of them. There's also Trevor May, who profiles better the way they used him last year now in, in the uh, 
in the bullpen. I like him long term still as a starter because he's got the durability. His changeup is his best pitch. He's got the big fastball. It gets bigger. Fastball plays bigger in the in the in the bullpen as it does for many. But um, and then Barrios, uh, who I cannot see starting the season in the rotation, no matter what he does this spring, he's in tremendous shape. He's uh, he threw a live batting practice that uh, that had people walking away shaking their head, and, and Tori said uh, that was the nastiest two seamer, the late the latest movement on two seamer he'd seen since Fausto Carno- Carmona was Fausto Carmona, but um, <laughs> that's five years ago. But uh, I think you know that the rotation might look a little different come June. Uh, once Brios were to come up, and let's say somebody else struggled, um, and they wanted to pop May back in there, but um, for now, I think those first five I mentioned are probably how they're going to open the year. Glenn Perkins, he was fantastic in the first half last year. He dealt with some injuries, really was abysmal down the stretch. What's his status health-wise this spring, and is that the Twins' plan for this year to have him back in the closer role? Yeah, they took all the suspense out of that for us. Uh, no no uh, closer competition. Terry Ryan took that out of play in December at the winter meetings, saying that Perkins was going to be healthy and would be the closer. Kevin Jepson was outstanding after they acquired him. That was a, a stealth acquisition that, that uh, even those of us uh, no understanding what the team needed. There was disappointment in that clubhouse when all they came up came out of the trade deadline with in July was, was Kevin Jepson. And then Gave him two really good months, so he'll set up. Perkins is uh, thinner and uh, needs needed to take pressure off of his back because that's uh, bothered him now a couple of years in a, go, in a row. His neck uh, is uh, harder to predict, um, bulging disc in his neck, but uh, he did a lot of work, came down to Fort Myers early, three different stints, I believe, this winter, got out of our Minneapolis coal, and, and um and and looks good, and I saw him throw his live BP yesterday and looked like the, the usual Perkins, and you're right. He was so good in the first half, and they came to take him for granted, although he did have a couple of blips that were not blowing saves in tie games. Like Incredibly, it seems to happen to all the closers without the save carrot sitting there, but um, uh, he's you know, very important to the whole mix, and they line up nicely behind him if they can keep him out there. He, you know, he's, he feels a challenge to finish the season strong, and if he can, that'd be the first time he's done that uh, since 2013. All right, last question, Mike. What's the most compelling player or storyline that you're looking forward to covering with this team in 2016? Well, it's kind of a, I'll give you two. Uh, it's Park and his uh, and his assimilation on and off the field, and, and if, if he's going to end up being this great bargain because that contract was kind of controversial in, in South Korea, especially after uh, what Jung Ho Gong was able to do with, with Pittsburgh. It was basically as though the, the Gong uh, uh, season never happened. So the Twins got him at $3 million a year. That could be a, a steal if he can if he can hit the ground uh, running, and he doesn't need to hit 50 homers to be worth that. That 20-plus would be just fine to be a steal at that rate. And then Sano to right field, and will that take, and can they keep him on the field, which Paul Molitor even admits openly is a concern. Can they keep that big body covering all that all that area on the field and then productive at the plate where he means so much to this offense? Absolutely. Mike, thanks once again for coming on the show. Always a pleasure to talk twins with you. All right, George, anytime. So there you have it. That's going to do it for our conversation with Mike Berardino. You can check out his Twins coverage all season long in the Pioneer Press. That's TwinCities.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at Mike Berardino. And now let's send it back over to Ben Lindbergh to wrap things up. 
All right, that's it for today. Thank you to Ken and Mike for coming on. You can send us emails at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. We'll be doing a listener email show tomorrow, so get those in today. You can also join our Facebook group, which is very close to 3,500 members at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. Sam and I have a book coming out in just about two months. It's called The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. And it's about our summer, last summer, in Sonoma, California, running the Sonoma Stompers, an independent professional baseball team, trying to apply our beliefs about team construction and in-game management to an actual team with actual players who may or may not have been receptive to all of our ideas. comes out May 3rd, but if you pre-order at Amazon or Barnes & Noble, there's always a decent chance that it will ship a little in advance of that date. Just a reminder, you can follow along with the written team previews at the site started by Effectively Wild listeners, Banish to the Pen. Go to banishtothepen.com and you will see the team previews up on the same day that we do the previews here. You can rate and review and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and you can support our sponsor, The Play Index at baseballreference.com. Use the coupon code BP to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. We'll be back tomorrow with the email show. Welcome back to the land of the living, my friend. You have slept for quite some time.